Hello, my dear listeners. You found your way to Counter Melody, and I couldn't be more delighted to welcome you to my podcast. Once again, and as always, I'm your host, Daniel Gundlach, and I'm here to present to you the finest exponents, both renowned and less well-known, of the art of song. Sometimes it just seems as if the world has turned completely upside down, but it is my fervent hope, even in these difficult times, that the artists I present here may brighten our path with their luminous voices and inspire us on our search toward a better and more hopeful future. And now, this week's episode. Hello, everyone. As usual, it has been like Christmas for me, getting all these wonderful responses to the Annabelle Bernard episode that I posted last week. Isn't she extraordinary? There's nothing more to be said about it, except that I'm in the process of digging up further recordings of hers, which I shall be posting somewhere along the line as an episode that everyone can partake in. I do have a special Patreon page, and I announce it every week. I don't always get new supporters, but I do want to let you know about it in case you'd like to support the podcast. You can find it at patreon.com slash countermelody, and you can make a yearly or a monthly contribution anywhere from $2 a month or $25 a year on up will gain you access to all the bonus material that I have thus far posted. We're closing in on 100 bonus episodes, and they're all really interesting. I've recently begun a new series called Flea Market Favorites, which features recordings, most of which I have picked up at used record stores, through mail order, or indeed at flea markets here in Germany primarily. So, If you are inspired to support the podcast in that way, you will receive not only my gratitude, my eternal gratitude, but also access to all of those bonus episodes. And there will be more, I don't know, multimedia things coming up. I've lately started some interviews with people. I posted one with my dear friend David Saverin on his new book, Tell It to the World. This week's episode that you are about to hear is one of my newly inaugurated series of listeners' favorites. Usually when you get a listeners' favorites episode, that means that Daniel is overwhelmed with other responsibilities and he's uh, bringing an old episode out of mothballs and asking one of his friends and listeners to do the intro for him. That's what we have here today. My dear friend Damon Evans is introducing an episode I posted a couple years ago on the great African-American tenor George Shirley. I have to apologize for the sound quality on the interview that we did. It's a little dicey, but I hope that you'll be able to hear everything that the wonderful Damon Evans has to say about the superlative George Shirley. Now, Damon Evans. Oh my goodness, what an icon he is. The general public probably knows him best for his portrayal of the role of Lionel on the Norman Lear series, The Jeffersons. He also portrayed the young Alex Haley in the legendary miniseries Roots, The Next Generation. He's a proud Baltimorean, 
In fact, this week on Counter Melody, I am featuring three different Baltimore natives, Damon Evans, Ethel Ennis, and Veronica Tyler. Damon's off-Broadway and Broadway credits include the Mickey Grant musical Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope, another important musical of the era, The Me Nobody Knows, that I featured on one of my Forgotten Broadway episodes. He also appeared in the Broadway revival of Cordeville and Maxwell Anderson's Lost in the Stars, and he toured as Barnaby Tucker with Pearl Bailey and Cab Calloway in the all-black production of Hello, Dolly. Not only that, he was the first black singing actor to portray the role of Jesus Christ in the authorized concert version of Jesus Christ Superstar, 50 years before John Legend's performance on NBC. In addition, on the other side of the pond, he was nominated for an Olivier Award for Best Actor in a Musical for his appearance as Joe in the West End production of Carmen Jones that also starred the late Wilhelmina Fernandez in the title role. And since we're considering triumphs, we should also consider the opposite. He was featured as well in one of the most infamous Broadway flops, Via Galactica. In the field of classical music, Damon is probably best known for his portrayal of sporting life in the Glyndebourne production of Porgy and Bess. He makes reference to that in our brief interview when that production finally graced the stage of the Royal Opera House Covent Garden, the recording of which was chosen as one of Classical Music Magazine's 50 top recordings of all time. In 1966, when Damon was a student at Frederick Douglass High School and was singing in the chorus there, they were among a number of choruses engaged to perform in the Baltimore premiere of Michael Tippett's oratorio, A Child of Our Time. Tippett himself came to Baltimore to conduct the performance, which also included members of the Baltimore Symphony. When Damon says at the beginning of our interview that he just found the program, this is the performance that he's referring to. Years later, in 1992, Damon also recorded the tenor solos for Chandos Records. The recording was overseen by Michael Tippett himself. That recording is conducted by Richard Hickox, who in 1972 brought Damon over to the UK for his British debut, singing the tenor solos in Mark Blitzstein's The Airborne Symphony, originated by African-American tenor Charles Holland. In fact, Damon first got in touch with me after I posted in the early years of the podcast an episode featuring Charles Holland. So again, everything comes full circle, and that is one of the themes in our brief discussion. One aspect of Damon's life and career with which I was less familiar is just how outspoken and strong an LGBTQ advocate he has been for his entire life. To me, he represents out and proud. And speaking of proud, I am proud to call Damon Evans my friend. In his own way, he is as iconic, pardon the use of that overused word, as is George Shirley. 
I'm going to precede my brief discussion with Damon with an excerpt of Damon's own recording under the baton of Richard Hickox and under the supervision of Sir Michael Tippett of A Child of Our Time. This is the aria entitled, My Dreams Are All Shattered. After this excerpt, I'll go right into the interview with Damon. So without any further ado, I bring you two of the great African-American tenors of the past 60 years. performance of uh, A Child of Our Time. Really? Yes, <laughs> I found it. <laughs> so today I have the unbelievable honor and pleasure of welcoming as my guest, Damon Evans, the wonderful tenor and actor who's celebrated for so many different things. I've done a little spoken intro before this, so you if you didn't know him before, what's wrong with you? But anyway, now you know a little bit. <laughs> and here he is. Welcome, Damon. And you are going to do an intro for one of your favorite episodes of Counter Melody. What can you tell us about today's subject? Well, I knew of George Shirley, the George Shirley, um, while in high school, if not junior high, the very first time I saw George was right after I graduated from Interlochen in 67. He gave a uh, recital at Constitution Hall in Washington, D.C. I remember my grandmother had a box and Evelyn White taught voice at Howard was there. I remember being enamored. And actually, even before then, my grandmother gave me a gift to Europe. And the last stop was London. About the last day, I found the Royal Opera House. I don't know how I got in. 
I found myself on the stage. So you went in through the stage door? Stage door, just walked in and found myself on stage with the Royal Opera House. Finally, the stagehand came and said, what are you doing here? And I lied and I said, I'm a student at the Juilliard School. And he said, well, wait here. And a few minutes later, this woman came and she said, oh, you know Christopher West. Christopher conducted opera at the Juilliard School. I said, yes, yes, yes. She said, come back in half an hour and I'll give you a tour of the whole opera house. She said, you know, one of your boys just debuted here. And that was George and it's Donna Tavio. There I was, missed him because the engagement was over. I came back. She took me over the whole opera house, including the Queen's Box. Then it must have been that fall or August, he gave a recital at Constitution Hall. Wait, Damon, I just need to say this. So completely under false pretenses, you got the royal treatment and got a guided tour of Covent Garden. Yes, the complete opera house. She took me to the Queen's box. Let me tell you, the Queen had an obstructed view of the stage. So they had a mirror, a mirror in the opera house so she could see the other half of the stage. I'm telling you, that was the most well-stocked bar of liquor I have ever seen in my life. (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, Yes, it was a complete tour of the opera. Then, of course, in 92, we did book Porgy and Bess there, the Glyndebourne production. So, I mean, um, you can't make up these stories. You know, let me just say this about George. George is in every sense what a good parent should be. A whole crop of young black singers, singers in general, not just black singers. He mentors, he fosters, and he wants you to do better than he did. He wants you to reap the benefits of whatever trailblazing he may have done. There is no jealousy, there is no animosity, there is advice and encouragement. I have worked in theater, I have worked in television, I've worked in recording and in classical music. I have yet to meet someone of that caliber. I'm overwhelmed to be here to talk about him. There's such a class and elegance about him. (laughs) Yes. And humility. But you know, another thing that was so beautiful, Damon, is that when I first posted this episode several years back in honor of his 85th birthday, he responded so kindly. I didn't know him at all. And he was so enthusiastic about what I had posted. And he even said that certain of the excerpts that I had used, specifically the Persephone Stravinsky excerpt, he didn't even know that it existed. I mean, I couldn't have been more pleased. Well, it doesn't surprise me he would have reached out. Also, what I used to always love about George's voice was that, yes, he was a tenor, but there always seemed to be a slight baritonal quality to it. There was, it was a meaty tenor. Yes. I used to love that about it. Damon, I was going to say that the theme for my Black History Month episodes has been Forgotten Divas. And it just so happens that the two divas that I'm going to feature in addition to this episode with you introducing George are both from Baltimore as well. The jazz singer Ethel Ennis and also the soprano Veronica Tyler, who I believe was someone that you knew. Yes. Yes, I knew Veronica. I grew up knowing the music of Ethel Ennis. I wouldn't even be surprised if both my parents had gone to school with her. 
yes, they were just part of being a proud Baltimorean. And then, yes, I worked with Veronica. I knew Veronica. We went to the same high school in Baltimore, Douglas. We were mentored by the same teacher, the great, the legendary Marion T. Smith. That woman does not get enough credit. They need to name a street or something after her. Yeah, I even saw Veronica perform immediately after she won the Tchaikovsky competitions. These were my heroes growing up. I have to tell you, that whole era of the 60s, I tell kids today, you have no idea what you missed. That whole promise of new opportunities, that we were going to change the world. You have to understand what that whole era was like the emergence of black talent on arena and stages where we had been forbidden to perform. You have to understand what that was all about. Yes, it was all just dawning on the horizon, all these new opportunities for black artists. Exactly, exactly. I'm lucky I came from a family of educators. I mean, I remember when it was Negro History Week. (laughs) This was just part... You knew your history. You knew from whence you'd come. I don't know if our generation of young people today have any idea. And I don't mean just black students. I mean brown students. I mean LGBT students. I mean theater students. I mean Asian students. Because everything I'm seeing that's happening today, I knew about happening before. I have to tell you, I mean, and I think you know this already, I mean, this is a big reason that I do the podcast. I do it, of course, just for people who love opera and singers in general. But also, I think of this as an educational forum, I guess, for people to learn more about history, whether that's, as you say, LGBT artists, or black artists, or just great singers of the past that people are not so aware of anymore. Yes, yes. And you know something, the older I get, the more I realize, you know, nothing is really new. (laughs) No, it is not. But there are still things from the past that we can experience and that are so fresh and wonderful that they sound as if they were new. Yes. People like you or George or Veronica Tyler or Ethel Ennis, all of these people were such innovators and pathbreakers. Right? Well, you know what I love about you, Daniel? You love singers. There are no labels. You understand the artistry, no matter if whether it's opera, whether it's cabaret, whether it's Broadway. That is what I love about you. That's what I love about your podcast. Oh, thank you. It's nice to hear someone else toot my horn for once. I do appreciate that. (laughs) That's very important, you know. Yeah. Because it's a form of artistry which each thing, it really is. And and we need to learn to appreciate that. And not to be condescending because one may be a bit more commercial than the other. It's all art. Yes, well, you experienced that in your own career, did you not? I mean, you covered the gamut. Yes, 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 yes. And, you know, it's so funny. Look, when I first started studying voice with Dan Farrell at Manhattan School of Music, I can remember them being very condescending because I'd come from the Broadway stage. And I learned so much doing musicals on Broadway and how to dissect the character and everything. And I resent it to this day. Oh, you're from Broadway. Yes, proudly I am. I remember auditioning with Lonely House 
at the Juilliard School from street scene. And I remember the accompanist said, I wouldn't put that on the program if I were you, because they will view it as a Broadway song. But that is an aria. And as we know, I, 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 in the original production of Street and, Scene, and, it was sung by Brian Sullivan, who was a Met yes. tenor, who sang Lohengrin yes. at the Met. Yes, yeah. and Jerry Hadley did it on the recording. And yes. so beautifully, yes. I know, but that's where we were 50 years ago. That is really where we were. Well, listen, I don't want to go on too much longer because we've got a whole episode featuring the great George Shirley to offer to the listeners. So, Damon, thank you so much for being with me today. It's been an honor, and I just treasure our friendship. And I hope that my listeners get a little taste of just what a fabulous person you are, too. Oh, well, look, I, I treasure our friendship, too. I really do. It's been such an honor to pay homage to George. I owe him so much because as a tenor myself, he was and still is my hero. Thanks again, Damon. Okay, everybody, here's the episode. Dear listeners, and welcome to Counter Melody. It is I, your host, Daniel Gundlach. And as always, I'm committed to bringing you the voices of beloved singers, often focusing on unexpected facets of their artistry. You will also be hearing less celebrated but equally treasurable artists who deserve our attention and respect. I'm honored to have you join me on this ongoing mutual journey of discovery. And now, without any further ado, let's get down to today's business. Great singers and great singing. Hi, and welcome to Counter Melody. We have a birthday to celebrate today. It's George Shirley. He was born April 18th, 1934, which makes today his 87th birthday. I offer this episode in tribute to an artist who, as I shall relate, influenced me enormously in my very young years. When I was a little lad with folly on my lips, fain was I for journeying o'er the seas in ships. But now across the southern swell, every dawn I hear the Streams of dune are running clear. The little streams of dune are running clear. When I was a young man before my beauty was gray. All to ships and sailor men I gave my heart away. But I'm weary of the sea wind. I'm weary of the foam and the lake. 
The performance that you just heard was a recording from 1973 of a song by the composer Josephine McGill called Duna. Josephine McGill was a composer and ethnomusicologist who researched and collected the songs of the southern Appalachian region. Duna has more nautical references, and at one point, I think it was a very popular song. Certainly at the time George Shirley recorded this, it was no longer in the forefront of people's awareness. But when there is a singer with as much refinement, technique, gorgeous tone, and commitment to expressivity as George Shirley. It is a joy to encounter a piece such as this. George Shirley was born in Indianapolis and grew up in a musical household. At the age of five, he won a radio contest singing a song of Bing Crosby's. While he remained interested in and studied music, his intention was never to pursue a career in opera. However, by a series of happy accidents, or as my dear friend Janet Williams would call it, serendipity, he ended up getting drafted into the U.S. Army, and from there, he auditioned for and was accepted as the first black member of the U.S. Army Chorus. While he was in the chorus, he began studying with a voice teacher in Washington, D.C. One thing led to another very, very quickly, and by 1959, he had made his operatic debut. The following year came his European operatic debut as Rodolfo in La Boheme. But let me tell you about how I first became acquainted with George Shirley. I was a 10-year-old child, and I was obsessed with the recording that Pierre Boulez had made of Peleas et Mélisande, which I had discovered on the shelves of the Janesville Public Library in Wisconsin. I believe that recording spent more time in our house checked out by yours truly than it did on the shelves of the Janesville Public Library. This music is still music that I cannot hear without becoming extremely, shall we say, emotional. I'm going to offer you an extended excerpt from Act 3, Scene 1, the scene in which Peleas pays an evening visit to Melisande, who is combing out her hair as he climbs the tower from which she is looking out, her long hair falls over the edge of the tower, and Peleas has an ecstatic experience finding himself enveloped in her hair. 
This recording originated from a production at Covent Garden in 1969. Pierre Boulez was making his second major foray into opera after having conducted Wozzeck at the Paris Opera several years before. George Shirley was ideally cast as Peleas, and the Swedish soprano Elisabeth Söderström is his Melisande. I must say that all three of these artists went on to occupy a major part in my development as a musician, a singer, and an artist.
As I say, George Shirley was ideally cast as Peleas, but he also sang roles, especially at the beginning of his career, interestingly, that were much heavier than one might have imagined. For instance, in the episode that I did on Margaret Tynes a few months ago, I featured an excerpt from a live performance from Spoleto of her singing the title role in Richard Strauss's Salome, in which George Shirley sang not the role of Narabot, as one might have perhaps imagined, but rather the role of Herod. At this point, I should mention that I am also doing a bonus episode on George Shirley for my Patreon subscribers. If you're interested in gaining access to that, please go to patreon.com slash countermelody and you can support me at any level from $2 on up and gain access to all 16 of the bonus episodes that I have so far posted. One of the excerpts in the George Shirley bonus episode is a portion of that Zalome recording. Other large-ish roles that George Shirley sang were Oedipus in Oedipus Rex, which he recorded with Igor Stravinsky himself in 1963, Alva in the U.S. premiere in Santa Fe of Alban Berg's Lulu, Don José and Carmen, which we'll be hearing in a few minutes, and at the very beginning of his career, perhaps most surprisingly, Bacchus in Ariadne of Naxos. I found a live recording from the Washington Opera Society of the final scene between Ariadne and Bacchus. I'm going to play just a very short portion of it for you. You can hear how easily he manages the extreme highs of this role, and with a voice that has a wonderful baritonal timbre, but also great, gleaming, and easy high notes. His Ariadne here is the soprano Joanna Neal. I had not heard of her before, but I discovered that she premiered the soprano part in Krzysztof Penderecki's oratorio Cosmogonia, which was written for the 25th anniversary of the United Nations in 1970. That's just one of the things that she did. I like her very much. I hope you do too.
1961, George Shirley became the first African-American tenor to sing at the Metropolitan Opera and one of the very first black artists to be placed under contract there. He made his debut as Ferrando in Così fan tutte, and in 1968, he recorded the role opposite Leontine Price. While Leontine Price was clearly the raison d'être for this recording, I think it's a surprisingly effective performance. And George Shirley is one of the real highlights. By the way, the other women in the cast are Tatiana Troianos in a very early outing and Judith Raskin, who we will hear a little bit later in this episode. This is a portion of the duet between Ferrando and Fiordiligi in which after trying and trying to resist his charms, she finally finds herself giving in to him, and they sing with apparent joy about their happiness, and yet we know in the case of each of the characters, they are experiencing enormous surges of conflicting emotion. Erich Leinsdorf conducts the New Philharmonia Orchestra in this Grammy-winning recording.
certainly George Shirley became most celebrated, I would say, for his Mozart portrayals. In the Met's inaugural season in its new home at Lincoln Center, George Shirley sang the role of Tamino in the brand spanking new production of Die Zauberflöte, which was designed and painted by Marc Chagall. This remained an active production for many years. Here is a brief excerpt from the reunion of Tamino and Pamina. Tamino mein, o welch ein Glück. Joseph Krips is the conductor, and Judith Raskin, another singer who I adore with all of my being, is Pamina. About this performance, and about George Shirley's singing of Mozart in general, I want to say that I love hearing a voice where you hear the humanity of the singer. And I think that is so much the case in the singing of both George Shirley and the divine Judith Raskin.
Another role which George Shirley sang at the Met and with which he became very closely identified was Pinkerton in Madame Butterfly. There exists a live broadcast from the Met opposite Renata Scotto as Butterfly. I'm going to give you an excerpt from the love duet at the end of Act One, not from that performance, but rather from a few years earlier in Buenos Aires at the Teatro Colón. Once again, Scotto is the butterfly. George Shirley is, I dare say, greatly inspired by her extraordinary portrayal. And the conductor is Pedro Ignacio Calderón, who was a very important figure in Argentinian musical life. This performance took place on the 15th of May, 1964.
George Shirley clearly sang with the very greatest of singers. We've already heard him partnered with Elizabeth Söderström, Leontine Price, Judith Raskin, Renata Scotto, and even earlier in his career, in 1962, he appeared as Don José in Carmen, opposite none other than Shirley Verrett, who was making her operatic debut in these performances. Thomas Shippers is conducting. We're going to hear the very end of the opera, in which, I must say, sparks fly between George Shirley and Shirley Verrett. This performance took place in Spoleto in July 1962, Just be 
mentioned that George Shirley did a good deal of work with Igor Stravinsky. He recorded Renard with him. He recorded Pulcinella with him. He recorded Oedipus Rex with him and with Shirley Verrett. And by the way, for my Patreon subscribers, you can hear the duet from that very recording with George Shirley and Shirley Verrett and Igor Stravinsky conducting on the bonus episode. But now back to the here and now. Another role which George Shirley sang, albeit, I believe, less frequently, the role of Umolpe in Stravinsky's fascinating hybrid work Persephone, Persephone. This recording took place at the Hollywood Bowl in the summer of 1968, and we hear one of the very high-lying passages from the role of Umolpe. Persephone is portrayed by a ballerina who also speaks. In this concert performance, she was portrayed by Yvette Mimieux. We hear Paul Forverk conducting the Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra.
Another role in which George Shirley made a very strong impression was as Mephistopheles in Ferruccio Busoni's opera Doctor Faust. This opera was incomplete at the time of Busoni's death in 1924, and it was completed by his student Philippe Jarnach. In December 1964, the work was given its U.S. premiere. Yasha Horenstein was conducting the American Opera Society. What's interesting about the roles in Dr. Faust is that, unlike in the Gounod version, Faust is a baritone, and Mephistopheles is not a bass baritone at all, but a high-lying tenor. Here's an excerpt from Mephistopheles' scene with the students from the second part of Dr. Faust. By the way, we'll hear another live excerpt from George Shirley at Carnegie Hall from around this same time in the bonus episode. So tune in there, folks. George Shirley was a great favorite at Covent Garden. We've already heard at the very top of the episode that unforgettable 
Peleas. Two years prior to those performances, he sang the role of Don Ottavio in Don Giovanni. This was a role he did quite frequently, and when you hear this live performance conducted by Colin Davis from the summer of 1967, you're going to understand why he was so sought after in this part. Shirley, after those initial forays into some of the heavier repertoire, found his true niche, I would say, in the more lyric tenor parts. For instance, in February 1969, he returned to Covent Garden for performances of Die Meistersinger von Nürnberg under the baton of Georg Scholte. But he did not take on the role of Walter, but rather the role of the apprentice David. And how rare it is, may I say, to hear this part sung with such vocal beauty. I have a brief excerpt from the first act of the opera. The Walter in this recording is the American tenor Jess Thomas, who also was in his 
vocal prime at the time of these performances. There's a wonderful baritonal quality to George Shirley's voice, which I have remarked upon and which you, my listeners, have probably already remarked upon yourselves. The other thing that was, to my ear, really extraordinary about this artist is 
Well, there are a few things. One is, as we heard in the Il Mio Tesoro, was his extraordinary ability to sing rapid fire and very clean coratura with a very, very long breath line. The conductor in that performance was Colin Davis, who the following year engaged George Shirley to record the title role of Mozart's Idomeneo with him. The next excerpt I'm going to play for you is a bit of a mashup of two different performances that George Shirley did, one live, one studio, that George Shirley did of the title role of Idomeneo. In the summer of 1974, he sang the role on stage at Glyndebourne with John Pritchard leading the London Philharmonic Orchestra, which is the pit band at Glyndebourne. Imagine that. So we're going to hear the recitative leading up to the big showpiece aria for del mar. That portion is from the Glyndebourne performance. Then for the Fuor del Mar, I'm cutting to the studio recording with Colin Davis from several years prior, 1968. By the way, as you're listening to this, I want you to also pay close attention to the way in which George Shirley responds to the rhetorical nature of this opera seria text, delivering it on a very grand scale and yet with also a sense of the real inner conflict of the character. I, I just love what he does here. Thank you. 
can hear in the recordings that I'm playing for you, the voice remained remarkably consistent, even through his early 60s. In the early 1980s, George Shirley began appearing with some frequency at the Deutsche Oper Berlin. In 1984, he appeared as Pluton in a New Year's Day performance of Jacques Offenbach's Orphée aux Enfers, or Orpheus der Unterwelt. In this excerpt, we hear the aria Heureuse Divinité qui folatre with Jesus Lopez Cobos conducting the orchestra of the Deutsche Oper Berlin. Thank you. 
of George Shirley singing art songs. In 1973, he participated in a recording of songs by the Austrian-American composer Karl Weigel, who had emigrated to the United States in 1938 and died here in 1949. The pianist David Garvey who, of course, for many years was Leontine Price's primary accompanist, assembled a star-studded lineup of singers, each of whom performed a few Karl Weigel songs. Unfortunately, this recording did not originate from my collection, and the sound is really poor. Otherwise, I would offer you several songs from this collection, because the songs are beautiful, and the playing and singing are absolutely wonderful. I am going to play you a setting of a poem called Seele, Soul, to a text by Gustav Falke. Dämmerung löscht die letzten Lichter, und die Erde will nun schlafen, aber ruhelos bist du, steuerst aus dem stillen Hafen deinen Sternen zu. Twilight is putting out the last lights, and the night encloses all life closer and closer unto itself. The earth wants to fall asleep, but you are sleepless. Out of the quiet port you steer towards your stars. In 1973, George Shirley made a series of recordings for Music Minus One. It was part of their so-called Laureate series. These recordings are now nearly impossible to get your hands on, but I was so lucky to find a distributor in the UK who sent them on to me. 
So a special shout out to Forsyth's music shop in Manchester and specifically to Ryan, who, when one of the discs arrived broken, expedited the shipment of the one replacement copy that they still had in stock so that I would have it in time for this birthday episode. So I'm going to be able to offer both at the end of this episode and to an even greater extent on the bonus episode several excerpts from these very interesting recordings. First, there is the Alessandro Scarlatti song, Son unite a tormentarmi. Proud fate and cruel love are united to torment me. They wage war on my heart, not with weapons, but with flattery. The pianist in this series of recordings is Wayne Sanders. In this series, George Shirley included two songs by the wonderful composer Howard Swanson. Those of you who are regular listeners may remember that I played a wonderful song of his, sung by the soprano Helen Thigpen, on one of my Black History Month episodes. Here I offer you the very short but ecstatic setting by Howard Swanson of the Langston Hughes poem, Joy. To look for joy, slim dancing joy, gay laughing joy, bright eyed joy. And I found her, I found her, driving the butcher's cart in the arms of the butcher boy. Such company. Such company, such company as keeps this young nymph joy, joy, joy. We had spoken earlier, or at least I had spoken earlier, about George Shirley's exemplary diction, and also about the baritonal timbre that 
made him such an ideal Peleas, for example, and gave real depth and weight to his portrayals of the Mozart heroes. In 1976, he participated in a live performance in Milano of Benjamin Britten's War Requiem. He's truly an exceptional voice here. I've chosen to include the portion of the piece, which is the setting of the Wilfred Owen poem, Move Him Into the Sun. In the interspersed portions of the Latin Requiem Mass, we hear the soprano Ilva Ligabue, Fernando Previtali conducting the orchestra and chorus of the Rai in Milano.
George Shirley has spent decades as an educator and supporter of young talent, including a decades-long association with the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, where he is now a professor emeritus. To close today's episode, I found a very moving clip of George Shirley speaking about the legacy of spirituals and why he held off for so many years in performing them, followed by his performance with the distinguished African-American coach, and accompanist Sylvia Lee of that extraordinary spiritual arranged by Roland Hayes' Little Boy. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, George Shirley, for all these years of service and devotion and sharing of your extraordinary talent that you have given to the world. We are very much in your debt, and we are thrilled to celebrate with you on this, your 87th birthday. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And now, here's George Shirley. When I started my career as an opera singer and as a recitalist, I purposely eschewed the performance of spirituals for a number of years. Why? Because I knew everybody expected me to sing them. And I've taken great pride, I trust it's not false pride, but pride in not doing what people expect me to do, especially when it enters the realm of race. So I purposely left spirituals off of my programs for a while but I knew that I had to come back to them because it was great music. There was a cartoon drawn by the late E. Sims Campbell that I've never, never forgotten, which was published in the 1950s. It sort of illustrates visually what I'm talking about. The 50s were a time when the faculties of some universities in this country began to desegregate. And this cartoon shows a distinguished looking black gentleman in a conference room at a university, and there are a number of white males at the table, and one of these gentlemen, who's evidently the chair of whatever committee this happens to be, is addressing the black gentleman who's standing there with a rather perplexed look on his face with a sheaf of papers in his hand. And the statement goes something like this. Now, Professor Jones, before you read us your paper on the effects of nuclear fission, blah, 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 blah. How about a good old spiritual? (laughs) So I decided for a period of time at least not to program spirituals on my recitals. But as I said, I had to come back to the spiritual because it's great music. The spiritual that I'll sing for you today, the one that became Roland Hayes' signature, is entitled Little Boy. And it depicts Jesus meeting in the synagogue with the elders. My orchestra on this occasion is a lady who's not unknown to many of you, Miss Sylvia Lee. Oh! 
25th of December, lawyers and doctors were amazed and had to give the little boy the praise. Little boy, how old are you? Little boy, how old are you? Little boy, how old are you? Sir, I'm only twelve years old. The last time the little boy was seen, he was standing on Mount Olivet Green, and when he Blessed of the crowd, he entered up into a cloud. Little boy, how old are you? Little boy, how old are you? Dear friends, keep the song in your hearts. I'm Daniel Bundlach.